morning, Church. Uh, I'm Vivia. I'm speaking from Eindhoven. I'm very grateful to, for this opportunity uh, to preach on Zoom service on Trinity Online Service this morning, and I thank Pastor Francis for giving me this opportunity. Now, I'm a person who likes lots of interaction with the group I'm speaking to. Um, I like to see faces, yeah, and yeah, get the visual cues and stuff, but yeah, we're living in a strange time where we see each other through these virtual windows and forget about eye contact or other cues. Um, and I now get a taste of what Francis says about preaching to the green dot, the camera screen dot. But I believe the Lord is with us this morning, whether we see each other or not. Um, he is uniting, the Holy Spirit is uniting us as one body in Christ. Uh, his spirit is present to move and work among us, just as we sang a few minutes ago, welcoming the Holy Spirit to come breathe new life into our willing souls. We had two amazing and quite dramatic passages read to us this morning. Um, on occasions like this, it is hard to just pick one uh, to focus on preaching. The Exodus passage is a glorious one showing how God connects with man, a man who intercedes for his people and who would simply not leave unless he was assured by God himself of his presence. God accepts his plea and honors his longing for him and does what he asks of him. Today, I am going to be focusing on the other amazing passage that Rick brought us from Matthew. Um, I'd like to open up that Matthew passage for us. And shall we consider together what God is telling us today? Being one of the leaders of the preteen group, One Tim for 12 in our church, I'm always thinking of ways of keeping our youth members uh, of the congregation who are probably listening in engaged. Uh, so for my One Tim for 12 kids and other young members of the congregation, and for those of us who are visually inclined, here is a short clip of, of the Matthew passage in drama format. Um, watch closely how Jesus responds in action to the question he is asked. Rajesh, could you please play the clip? Thank you. Teacher, we know that what you say and teach is right. We know that you pay no attention to man's status, but... Uh teach the truth about God's will for man. Tell us, is it against our law for us to pay taxes to the Roman emperor or not? Careful, Lord, you can't trick you. Show me a silver coin. Whose face and name are these on it? Caesar! Then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. A little bit of background here might be helpful. Um, we see clashes between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, 
from Matthew chapter 22 to 24. Uh, we've been following Matthew uh, in our lectionary and Jesus had been contrasting both the kingdoms and exposing the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. Jesus was causing quite a stir since the time he entered Jerusalem. The Pharisees were not happy about it. Last Sunday, we heard guest preacher Mr. Sunil speaking to us on the preceding passage from Matthew 24, 1 to 14, exhorting us to be clothed in befitting clothing that's fit for God's kingdom, God's uh, banquet. That was one of the parables Jesus had been using to contrast the two kingdoms. Now, the story moves on from parable teaching to a more dramatic real life scene. And the video we just saw gives us an approximate idea of how uh, the setting could have been in that day back in Jerusalem. If you have your Bibles, would you open it to Matthew 22 and uh, yeah, verse 15 and part of 16 it goes like this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, Matthew, the gospel writer Matthew, puts it a bit mildly compared to Luke, who also records the same incident in his gospel and gives us more details about their evil intent. Uh, Luke 20, 20 says this. So they watched him and sent spies who pre pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Yeah, so they had evil intent. They had the, they had, they wanted to hand over Jesus for something that he would say, some, the words he would say. Uh, the Pharisees who wanted to ask the question did not go themselves. They coached, they trained their students and, you know, they sent them. And they knew that the question they're going to ask is, is too politically charged. Um, if we see who were there, it was the Pharisees, the students of the Pharisees and Herodians. Now, this is an interesting alliance of questioners here. The Pharisees and Herodians, uh, yeah, they, they were opposites. The Pharisees, the Israel leaders, were devoted to the law, its teaching, uh, and the traditions of Judaism that were handed down to them by their forefathers, and they were keen to preserve it and hand it down, you know. Um, and the Pharisees held the view that this Messiah would be a victorious Messiah who would deliver Israel from Israel and defeat their pagan oppressors. In their view, Jesus did not fit this. Uh, now, the other group, the Herodians, were in the opposite spectrum of the Pharisees politically. They were supporters of King Herod, who was only partially Jew. And this King Herod was a puppet king in the hands of the Roman government. Yeah, they, they knew that Herod would cooperate with them and yeah, be willing to do what they want him to do. So these Herodians were this group of sympathetic people who, who sympathized with the Roman government and sought to fit in encouraging people to pay taxes and yeah. 
what could have possibly brought these two opposite groups together? The Pharisees and Herodians were not friends. One detests the Roman rulers and the other, well, the other supports. But they have a common enemy, Jesus. So as an enemy's enemy, they become friends for this instance and form an alliance to entangle Jesus. Now, these two, these two groups carefully craft their words. First, they begin with some great buildup and insincere flattery of Jesus saying good and true words about him, his integrity, his dependable teachings, and his fearless lack of concern for the opinion of others. And they go on to pose their question. Verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Mm. This was their carefully crafted question that allows for only for a yes or no answer. They simply wanted to limit Jesus' options so he had no choice but to compromise. Also, they thought the weight of, of any answer that Jesus would give lies on this. If he answers yes, then he would be perceived as in alignment with the Roman occupation and supporting its oppression of God's people, the Jews, who would rise up against him. That would become easy to blame him for saying something that he was willing to morally compromise or to save his own skin. Now, if he answers no, then the Herodians would waste no time in handing him over to the Roman officials for rebellion and sedition. Their problem is gone and they don't have to bother about Jesus anymore. Either way, Jesus would still lose, they thought. Now, I want to quickly digress a little bit here uh, to glean out a couple of apologetics points for those of us who have a year for questions and actively find ourselves in conversations of faith with folks around us. So there's that I, I want to give two tips. One tip is one tip is just now, and I'll give one a little later. So apologetics tip number one: know your question. The, uh, knowing the nature of questions can really help you to respond appropriately. Usually asking questions is a good thing. Questions make people think. Right questions hold the keys to discovery. And asking questions forces people to open up their assumptions, expose sometimes faulty logic, and helps bring clarity to the issue. And it also exposes people's motives and it ensures a conversation. I have heard, often heard lecturers in their attempt to encourage students uh, uh, to ask questions and keep up the spirit of inquiry uh, say, there are no wrong questions. This is particularly true in a classroom setting. And we at One Tempo 12 also encourage our youngsters to ask questions. But not all questions are answerable. Not all questions are good and right. 
In this instance, Jesus was asked a trap question, which was a combination of what's called a faulty dilemma and a cultural assumption. I'll just explain faulty dilemma here. Faulty dilemma is one where you have your choice is restricted and it sets itself up as a trap. Um, here is an example of this type of question. Listen carefully. Does your mother know that you are stupid? If the responder says yes, it means they are stupid and their mother knows it. If the responder says no, it means they're still stupid, but their mother doesn't know. And even if they say, I do not know, it means they're so stupid that they don't even understand the question. Whatever answer one gives to this question, they're always wrong. Now, Jesus was asked one such question. And not every answer needs to be a yes or no. And not every answer needs to be answered in the frame it was asked. Sometimes unpacking of assumptions is required. And from reading the scripture, Jesus rarely gives a yes or no answer. He often answers a question with a question. And he asked, he asked more questions than he answered. His questioners, his questions leave his listeners in wonder, in reflection, in discovery, and in discomfort. So the tip here I want to give is know the nature, knowing the nature of the question can really help us in responding appropriately. Now, back on track to see how Jesus responds to this tricky question. The, the question Jesus was asked was very charged. Jesus knows that and does not answer the question in the frame it is posted. He unpacks it to get to its root and expose it. Jesus knew the malice in their hearts and quickly responds back with a sharp question. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Why hypocrites? Because they were posing a question as though they wanted an answer in order to learn and draw from the wisdom of Jesus. But in reality, they were only trying to entangle Jesus and their hearts were malicious. Jesus asks, why? And forces them back to their motives. Then he follows up with some action that would expose them further. What does he do? He asks for a coin that is used to pay the tax. Clearly, Jesus did not carry coins on him. They were quick to pull out a denarius. If you had noticed the video, immediately they took it from their body and presented that to Jesus. So this denarius was is the first uh, century, in, it, it was in common circulation in first century Jerusalem. And it would have looked like this. So uh, yeah, thanks Rajesh. On the screen you see uh, the denarius and the heads and the tails of it. So the inscription on the head read like this. 
it had an inscription, it had the uh, image of uh, Tiberius Caesar engraved on it. And it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. And on the other side, Pontifus Maximus, which means the high priest on the other side. So uh, this poll tax or this tribute money, as it is called, goes directly to the emperor's walls. And also, although this tax was not too high, it was still not an insignificant amount. It was uh, a common, a day's worth for a common man. So yeah, it was not insignificant. The Pharisees and the common Jewish people did pay their taxes to the Roman government, but resented it. Um, now, the fact to note here is the fact that they comfortably carried it on themselves quickly revealed their position. And by asking whose likeness and inscription is this, Jesus drew their attention to this image and forced them to acknowledge that it was Caesar's. There are, now there are some subtle things, but not so subtle things going on here. Those directly concerned would have known where this is all headed. It is hard to imagine, ignore the idolatrous nature of the coin which calls Caesar divine. God, God of the Yahweh God, have, has asked Israel not to make any inscription or not to make any graven image among them. And they, they carry this coin with them so easily, so comfortably. He was exposing the idolatry and the hypocrisy. So the issue was not really the question they were asking. The issue is deeper. And then he answers... Now, with words, with the famous words, you know. Therefore, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God the things that are God's. You can bring back uh, to prison. Oh, yeah, am I in prison mode? Yes, I am. Um, I believe there are at least two things Jesus was not intending here when he said those words. What Jesus was absolutely smart, sharp, wise, and perceived their craftiness, Jesus did not answer them, uh, which uh, just to awe them and us with his cleverness and his presence of mind, and to escape the trap that was set before him. Be smart like Jesus, be diplomatic, learn to work your way through hard conversations. No, that was not what Jesus was really intending here. And neither was he giving wise counsel that God and the government are to be separated. Mm, this is God, this is God's share, and this is your Caesar's or your government's share, whatever, which is how many people seem to interpret this passage. He was not teaching a compromise that divides human loyalties between God and the emperor. It was not simply um, a political matter here. And the questioners were not looking for wisdom or advice from Jesus. There is something deeper going on here. 
if he had stopped at the first clause, rendered to Caesar what is Caesar's, it would have been incomplete. And only a half a spectacular. But he goes on to say, and to God, the things that are God's. You see, it's no longer a question of to whom you will pay your taxes, but to whom you will render worship. He shows how far their hearts are away from God. If they had given to God what first belonged to God, they would not only render to Caesar what was Caesar's, but they would have also bowed down before Jesus, Lord Jesus, and pledged their first allegiance to him. At this they marveled. They marveled. Not only had their perfect trap misfired, it turned it back, making them to look at their own hypocrisy. Jesus turns the tables again. Time for another quick apologetic step. So we, the first step was know your question. And apologetic step number two is know your questioner. Many times our answers can be disconnected from the questions and even more so from the questioner themselves. It is not important to merely answer quest, uh, uh, the question, but to understand the heart of the question and the process. Sometimes it so happens that in the process of answering a question, we lose the questioner. And behind every question is a questioner. People are not simply seeking plain answers to their question, whether it's intellectual or philosophical in nature. They speak out of their worldviews and usually deep questions that bother their heart. It is vital to make that connection through the heart of the questioner. And most, most questioners and conversations are not as malicious in their intent as Jesus faced. So Jesus was good at getting to the heart of the questioner every single time. He knew who he was speaking to and addressed or exposed the heart. For Jesus, it was a matter of the heart most of the times, rather than giving well-framed, simple, clear, direct answers to his questioners. When we speak to people getting to the heart can sometimes be uncomfortable and challenging. I have gone both ways personally, you know, as a young Christian, all too eager to defend my faith um, uh, and the gospel that I am uh, intellectually reasoning and talking, but I'd fail to connect with the person. I'd fail to know where they were coming from and what was actually troubling them. But as I have matured in my walk, it gets easier to listen to the Holy Spirit. And there have been many times that God has enabled me to have such hard conversations straight to the issue. And such conversations have led to clarity and sometimes even breakthroughs. We need the Holy Spirit's help for wisdom and discernment. And personally, I have always been helped by the Holy Spirit in such circumstances. So there we are. We have two tips for 
those of us who are interested in apologetics and have this conversation to keep this in mind, to know your questioner and know your question. Okay, so we've gone through the, the, the passage, we've broken it down, we saw what was happening. And now we move on to the application. How might this story impact our own contexts and lives today? Jesus reveals people's hearts. Nothing is hidden for Christ. God has the power to open our hearts and lay its contents bare for us. When he looks within, what does he see? Something to ponder. Now, we saw what, what, what might belong to Caesar. Caesar had the coin. What belongs to God? What belongs to God? Or rather, what does not belong to God? Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, and not just the world, the whole universe is the Lord's. Thank you, Rajesh, for the slide. Now, Caesar's image was on the coin and he had authority over it and he had claims to it. Where is God's image on? On whom is God's image on? Genesis 1, 26, 27 says this. God said, let us make man in our own image. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We bear God's image. God's claim on you and me is total. We belong to God entirely. We owe ourselves firstly and fully to Christ himself, our Lord and God. What would be a suitable response? What would be a suitable tribute to him from us bearing his image? We bear Christ's image, we bear God's image, the triune God's image. What would be a suitable response from us to this God who, owe, who to whom we owe everything? I think it's responding to God with our rightful worship of him. To render or to give ourselves 100% completely to him in true and rightful worship of him. We cannot worship God and something else. The key is this, worship God with all we are and have. And what might that entail? What that involve? 
whole selves and what we have. Think about our time, our possessions, our career, kids, our relationships, and more personally, our mouths, our mind, our hearts, our bodies, everything is to be lifted to God as a befitting response in worship of him. The English missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, said this, and I quote, Many there are who fail to see that there can be but one Lord, and that those who do not make God Lord of all do not make him Lord at all. Mm, quite strong. Our call is to render our whole selves in worship to this God whom we owe everything. Would you pray with me? Lord, even as uh, we heard your words, your words you spoke 2,000 years ago, addressing a crowd, addressing people who came to you. Lord, may, may we hear your words today as well. calling us out to give ourselves to you completely, Lord. Not partially, not half-heartedly, but joyfully, knowing that we belong to you. Holy Spirit, cause your word to come alive in each of us. And may we offer ourselves firstly and fully to you in every way that you may be pleased with our offering of worship to you. In Jesus' name I pray.